We are especially thankful today to have our guest speaker. Dr. Mark Rutland is no stranger to us. He has actually been such a consistent voice and blessing to our church ever since it was planted here as a campus of Mount Perrin. And uh, he was uh, mentored under Dr. Paul Walker on staff here for a couple of years in the 80s as this church was planted and then went on to greater and more glorious things, but keeps coming back because he will honor us by accepting all the invitations that we give him to preach here. But he has also been a consistent voice in uh, advising and counseling both uh, Dr. Mark Walker and myself. And uh, I counted a privilege uh, to count him as a friend that began years ago when I was in Birmingham pastoring and God brought our paths together. And, um, and uh, it's funny because you find the same DNA that, that sort of molded you and shaped you here from Mount Perrin North and uh, all these years uh, coming back together. And he's also one of the uh, consultants and counselors that really helped us as we renovated this whole project. So he has been such an influence on us one of the best preachers, most unique communicators because he makes the gospel clear. And I'm so thankful he agreed to be here today. Would you stand on your feet and welcome home Dr. Mark Rutland, please. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you very much. Please. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Walters. I appreciate it so much. And such a joy to be here. It's always nice when Kirk invites me, and uh, I, I have a unique ministry. I make congregations glad to have their pastor back. Um, <laughs> after I'm there, they say, Pastor, thank God you're home. So I appreciate it. It's always nice to be here. Such a jolly crew. So what happens in the early service is everything has to be abbreviated. So it's you know, a little bit of this, but the rest of it's in second service, a little bit of that, and the rest of it's in. So I know who shows up here in this service. It's people that want the whole thing. That's who's in the second service. Well, it is, it is great to be back every single time. Congratulations. Happy anniversary to you. Successfully well done for these last five years. The transformation that's happened here is incredible. I'm, I congratulate you, and I congratulate the, the work and the leadership. I think Kirk and Laura have done such a wonderful job here, and I know you're grateful that they're leading you in this season, aren't you? <laughs> 25 years. Wow. That's really something. I, I remember I had just uh, finished high school, and it, it's rude to laugh at the guest preacher. That is so exciting. I, I, this, this church, Mount Perrin, was a transformational moment in my life. Much of what I was doing, what I had been doing for some time, I can, I've continued to do through the years, but this opened Mount Perrin opened a whole new avenue and perspective on ministry, particularly on leadership, that I had never, never imagined was out there. Uh, why in the world Dr. Walker brought me here uh, to this day, I don't know. And I'm not sure until the day he went to heaven that he knew why he had brought me here. But it was, it was transformational. I don't know that I did very much for Mount Perrin, but Mount Perrin changed the direction of my concept of what leadership and ministry were about. I, uh, I wanted to celebrate this 25th anniversary with you in a, in a kind of a special way. We have been doing some special events through our ministry, Global Servants, our mission, international, international missions ministry, and the folks from overseas are here, and I thought it would be nice to bring them in to, to celebrate this and let them take part in it and also for you to see them again. In a sense, I still think of my missionary work in a large part as an extension of Mount Perrin and, and the mission work that we began here, that was really the initial work of it. And I still am grateful for the impact. So let me introduce some folks to you that are with me. 
from uh, our work began in, in Ghana, West Africa in 1982, and since that time, our international director, uh, now over five countries, Togo, Benin, Cote d'Ivoire, Burkina Faso, and mostly in Ghana, uh, his headquarters in Kumasi, Ghana, through most of those years from 1982, is Samuel Odano, my dearest friend, and here is Sammy Odano. When I, I five years ago, I said to the, to the board uh, at Global Servants, I said, I just don't want to run anything anymore. I want to travel and preach and teach and write, but I don't want to go to any more board meetings or budget meetings. I just want to, I want to be free to do those things. And they elected our son, Travis, as the international president of Global Servants. He pastors a church over near Athens, Georgia, and he is there preaching this morning. And he is also the international president of Global Servants. And when I made that declaration to the board, Sammy Odano said uh, he would also like to do the same thing in Africa. And so when I stood down, our son took over internationally. And in terms of West Africa, Sammy's son became the international director in Africa. This is Daniel Odano, our new director. From uh, Thailand, where we have our larger uh, girls' home, we have two girls' homes, one in West Africa. We also have a school there and 40-some-odd churches in five countries. But our principal work in Thailand is House of Grace. Our largest one began, Allison and I began in 1987. It's now a big, beautiful girls' home, 14 buildings on two campuses. And we have child sponsors here. I know, I know the Bears sponsor a girl in Africa and one in Thailand. If you're a child sponsor, would you raise your hand? Can I can see anybody else that's here? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, that means the world. Thank you. And uh, the directors of our work in Thailand are here. These are the Mulays, Allah, and Judapon Mulay. I'm going to ask them to stand. When Allison and I began House of Grace in 1987, we started the work in 86 and then really opened the home in 87. Uh, the first girl to come in to House of Grace was Judapon, and now she and her husband run the whole thing. Isn't that wonderful? Our overseas missions director, he, the Global Servants Office is in Winder, Georgia, and uh, Travis, of course, is the president. His associate pastor and also serves as the overseas missions director, and that is Tyler Ellis, and he's here with us also, Tyler Ellis. <laughs> Our child advocate director, that is the woman who oversees the, the children's needs. She makes sure all of the children in two girls' homes on two continents have what they need. She relates to our child sponsors, make sure that everybody gets a birthday present on time and Christmas presents. It's a huge undertaking, and she is here also, and that's Faye Inman. Faye, would you please stand? I, I'm very grateful to this church, and I'm always grateful for every time that I'm invited back. It means the world to me. I don't take it for granted. Congratulations on the last five years, the last 25 years, and I'm excited about what God is going to do here in the next 25 years. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn, if you will, to chapter 37 of the book of Genesis. Just before I forget, several people asked me if Allison was here with me today. She is not with me. Allison went to hear our son Travis preach. This is the level of loyalty that I inspire. Actually, there's more to it than that. She sends her greetings. She would be here. I'm leaving here from this service and drive directly to another place of ministry. I have to be there tonight in South Carolina. So she said, all that city hopping, it's not for her. She said, I'll, I'll be with Travis and pray for you. So 
Genesis chapter 37, beginning with verse 5. I'm going to skip in just a few moments verses, but when I do, I'll tell you so you can keep up with me. And Joseph dreamed a dream and told it to his brethren, his brothers, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Hear, I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance to my sheaf. To make obeisance is an antiquated English term. It's still good, but it's just that we don't use it much anymore. It means to bow, but it's different from the word. To bow indicates no motive or emotion. But to make obeisance means to bow reverentially, as in the presence of a high official. Verse 6, verse 8. And his brethren said unto him, Shall thou indeed reign over us, or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? Do you see in that passage, Joseph does not interpret his own dream. He only reports it, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars. It is his father who interprets the symbolism of the dream. The sun meaning his father, the moon meaning his mother, the stars meaning his brothers. Now listen to this. This This is not part of the sermon. This is free. Those who hate your dream and despise your dreams, including the enemy of your soul who hates whatever dream God gives you, they may understand the implications of your dream better than you do. Now to verse 10. And he told it to his father and to his brethren, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. Verse 18. And when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one one to another, Behold, this dreamer cometh. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say, Some evil beast hath devoured him, and we shall see what will become of his dreams. Put your hand on your Bible, if you will, and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that your word has penetrating power. And we ask that you would sweep aside every barrier to divine communication, rush in over the threshold of our souls, and speak to us deep within, deep unto deep, that when we leave here today, we will say, surely the Lord hath spoken unto us. In the mighty name of Jesus, the strong Son of God, amen, amen, and amen. Nearly 50 years ago, a young Baptist preacher stood on the steps of an American landmark and preached a message simple in its message and impactful internationally, transformational. Basically, all he said was, I have a dream. And Dr. King's message of that dream transformed. The culture that exists in this room today is to a great extent an extension of that dream. The laws of America have been changed. Culture has been transformed because God gave Dr. King a dream. He expressed it. He preached it. He talked it. There is something about a dream that longs for expression. When we receive that dream, it takes root in us. But as, our, as, it finds, as it finds incarnation inside of our creative imagination, it presses against us, longing for expression. We want to talk about it. We want to draw pictures of it. We want to share it. It longs for expression. I was walking through. I was the president of two universities over a period of time, 16 years, 
And so I was constantly surrounded by young people, and they all have dreams. And I was walking through the restaurant, the dining hall one day, and there was a girl sitting there all alone at a table. She had a piece of paper, and she was just writing something on this page. And she was writing a name over and over and over again. She was writing. The page was being filled with this name. And curiosity overwhelmed me. And I said, honey, what are you, what are you writing? She said, oh, President Rutland, this summer I'm getting married, and this will be my new name. <laughs> but she was excited about it. She wanted to share it. She wanted to express it. And, and you want to share your dream. You want to talk about it. You want to express it. But you have to be careful with whom you share your dream. Because there are self-appointed dream murderers. They will hate the dream that God has given you, and they will hate you. Like Joseph's brothers, they will hate you because of the dream, which you didn't manufacture. You didn't create. You didn't cause. It came from God, but having received it, they will hate you. Remember, Dr. King's dream changed America, but it got him murdered. He was shot dead off of the balcony of a hotel in Tennessee, largely because of his dream. So you have to be careful where you share your dream. It seems like the most logical thing in the world ought to be your, your most intimate acquaintances would be the people that would be the most enthusiastic over your dream. Your family, your friends, that's not always true. I, when I was uh, 29 years old, uh, right at the end of the Civil War, I remember... <laughs> you, you people are so rude. Um, <laughs> I, Allison and I were pastoring a small Methodist church when we received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It, it blew the walls out of our theological and experiential house. We, we, we didn't know anything except the sort of um, lifeless Methodism in, in which I, we pastored. And the only concept of ministry that I knew, I was saved in a Methodist youth camp and called to preach. So for me... A call to preach meant to be a Methodist pastor. I didn't, I didn't know there was anything. I didn't know any of you people were out here. Um, and so I became a Methodist pastor. When we received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I also received a fresh new dream for ministry, something that I, I couldn't even express because I lacked the vocabulary for what I could see. I could see it as clearly as I can see you. But I didn't know what it was. I didn't even know how to express it. I saw myself traveling the world, preaching in great churches, in little tiny villages, in the jungle. I saw myself building and constructing churches and teaching and, and all the things. I didn't know what to call it. Now I know it's called a missionary evangelist. But I didn't have any word for that. I didn't even know what to call it. So that, germ, that germinating dream was inside of me longing for expression. I went to a meeting with uh, some other Methodist pastors. I'd been appointed to some committee by the bishop of the North Georgia Conference, and I went to serve on this committee. I was the youngest person in the room, 29. All the other guys were real old dudes way up in their early 40s. And <laughs> I, I um, didn't really say anything in the meeting. When it got finished, the chairman of the committee said, we're finished early. Does anybody have anything they'd like to share? And I thought this was the propitious moment. And I raised my naive little hand and said, I have something I'd like to share. And I told them my dream. I told them all about it. And I learned why Jesus said, do not pour your pearls out before swine. Because that room full of pigs turned on me. They rend my dream, and then they begin to tear into me. They denounced it. They said, that's the stupidest thing we've ever heard of. They said, you have a PhD. You're a rising star in this denomination. You're going to flush it all down the tubes. You will walk off into Africa, and you'll never be heard from again. You're going to waste your whole life in ministry. I was not so arrogant at 29 that I thought I knew everything. These were old dudes. They were supposed to know stuff. It occurred to me, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm about to make the worst mistake of my life. 
I literally, not figuratively, I literally staggered out of that meeting. I went out to the parking lot to my car and I put my forearm up on the roof of the car and laid my head over on it, shaken. I was deeply shaken. Maybe I'm, a, maybe I'm about to commit some kind of stupid mistake. Suddenly, there was an audible voice behind me. I thought it was God. It nearly scared the liver out of me. It said, forget them. And I spun around, and there was the only man on the committee that hadn't said anything. He had followed me out to the parking lot. He said, forget them, son. Forget this meeting. Forget them. Forget me. Whatsoever the Lord saith unto thee, do it. If God has given you a dream, go for it. I said, what's wrong with those guys? What was that about? He said, they have lost their dreams, and they hate you for reminding them. He said, you remember that big guy, the big man in there who hammered you the hardest? He said, I have known him. We went to elementary school together. And he said, I remember the night at Camp Glisten Youth Camp that he stood up and testified that God had called him to be a missionary evangelist. And he never did it. He played it safe his whole ministry. And he despises you for reminding. He said, now forget him. Forget them. Forget me. And get on with it. I've tried to do almost everything that man said. Since that time, I, I, I've, I've tried to go on with that vision. We've built children's homes and, and hospitals. and just, I've tried to believe I've preached on every inhabited continent of the globe. But there's one thing he told me to do that I refused to do, and that was forget him. He was the dream encourager that I needed right at that moment. I want to be a dream encourager. I don't want to be that guy that, that rains on everybody else's dream parade. I want to be the one that uplifts and encourages and, and says, you can do this. You can accomplish it. If God gives you the dream, you can do it through God's grace. I, uh, I want to tell you about the greatest dream encourager of my life, a sweet lady. I, I was raised in a nomadic household. My, my father moved us frequently. I went to four schools in the first grade and 25 schools before I graduated from high school. We, we moved frequently. My, we were never unemployed. We didn't live out of the boot of a car or something. It's just that my dad would hear about a job in California and then Missouri and then Key West and, and then Maryland, and we just moved constantly. And so I was always the new kid in school. And we moved in the fifth grade to a tough little town, a little rural town, and the school was first grade through 12th grade, all in the same three-story building. It was very lower socioeconomic level. I felt very out of place. It was violent. The big kids picked on the little kids. I was frightened. I was small for my age. I know, as you look up here now at this massive and chiseled frame. <laughs> really? And... And frightened, but there was one redeeming feature in that little country school. It was my fifth grade teacher. She was a little fat lady who just loved fifth graders. She, she was not supremely educated. She taught me a mispronunciation for Mesopotamia that was to haunt me later in life. When in a public classroom at the University of Maryland, I referred to the Fertile Crescent as Mesopotamia. It was an embarrassing moment, but one for which I have forgiven her in the light of her greater good. She had one educational strategy that I wish every educator in the world would adopt. Every first Monday, the first Monday of every month, she would lean over the desk and twinkle her blue eyes mischievously and rub her chubby little fingers together, and she'd say, well, it's dream day. Yay, we all love Dream Day. We'd pull our chairs into a semicircle, and she would process a dream with every child. If it took all day, she would talk over your dream, share it with you, encourage it. And she never hurried. There were two rules. One was everybody had to have a dream. You could change every month if you wanted to, but you had to have a dream. The second was you couldn't laugh at anybody else's dream, or next month you had to stand in the hall during Dream Day, and nobody wanted to miss Dream Day. 
So she would talk to, the, to us like it made sense. She turned to Dalton Tull. He's a very dangerous Hulk. He was 37 in the fifth grade, and <laughs> we were all frightened of him. She said, Dalton, what's, what's your dream? Oh, he said, I want to be an astronaut. <laughs> I remember thinking, if Dalton Tull goes into space, it'll be with the chimpanzees. <laughs> but Mrs. Burkett acted like it was the most rational thing she'd ever heard. She said, oh, Dalton, won't that be exciting for me? She said, I'll be sitting on my sofa at home and they'll, they'll say, Colonel Dalton Tull, United States Air Force and NASA, he's climbing into the nose cone of his spaceship. Wait a minute, he wants to make an announcement. You'll raise the visor on your helmet and say, I wanna dedicate this flight to Mrs. Burkett and all the students in 5A. And we cheered and I remember thinking, this imbecile's gonna do this. Then she turned to little Maisie Blanchard, little dishwater blonde in the front row there, just as poor as she could be from a home so impoverished. She wore the same faded print dress to, to school every day of the fifth grade. She'd just wash it out and wear it the next day. The only shoes I ever saw wear were Big Brother's cast-off tennis shoes. She said, Maisie, what's your dream? She said, I want to be a movie star. Mrs. Burkett said, oh, won't that be exciting for me? I, I'll go to the movies, get my popcorn and my Coke, and I'll go sit in, the lion will roar, and then the credits will say, starring Maisie Blanchard. And she said, I'll turn to the other people in the theater and say, you may not know this. I taught Maisie Blanchard in the fifth grade. I don't know if Mrs. Burkett was a Christian. My family weren't Christians. I don't know any, what she knew about speaking faith or the eyes of faith. I don't, I don't know what she believed. I know that when she would talk about those dreams, she made us look different to each other. I remember thinking, Maisie Blanchard's going to be rich and famous someday. I'm going to be nice to her. <laughs> Finally, she said, well, here's the new boy. Let's ask him. Well, I knew who that was. I was 16 before I knew my real name. I thought my name was New Boy. She said, here's the new boy. Mark, what's your dream? As far as I know, no one had ever asked me. As far as I know, I'd never really formalized the thought myself. So when I answered, it shocked me. The answer erupted out of me. I said, I want to write books. As soon as it was out of my mouth, compared to the other boys, astronaut, and policeman, and cowboy, it seemed like such a prissy dream. I just glared around the room and said, just laugh, dream this. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I, I, maybe books had been an encouragement to a weird little fifth grader that always felt out of place. Maybe I thought I could write a book that encouraged some other weird little fifth grader. I don't know what it was. To this day, I don't know why I said it. But Mrs. Burkett took it up in her hands and breathed a breath of life on it. She said, oh, Mark, that's going to happen. She said, someday I'll walk into a bookstore and I'll see books by Mark Rutland. And I'm going to tell the lady at the cash register when I buy one, I taught this boy in the fifth grade. I don't know what happened in any of those other kids. I don't know if Dalton ever went into space even after he got out of prison. I don't know. <laughs> I only know what happened in my heart. Something changed inside me. When she said all that, it was as though it had already happened. Last year, my 19th book was published. Of those 19 titles, hundreds of thousands of copies have been sold worldwide. They've, they've, they've supported these girls' homes. I haven't taken one dime of that. All of that is gone. Th hundreds of thousands of copies sold. And I don't believe the first page of the first book ever would have been written except for a little fat lady that couldn't pronounce Mesopotamia. <laughs> I, I, that's, that's dream encouragement. Be careful whose dream you discourage. It isn't always easy. I know that. 
Sometimes people's dreams seem unreasonable or far-fetched, but, but that's not your, your job is not to kick their dream in the mouth. I, as a university president, I, the little brats were always dreaming something. No, I mean our beloved students. And, and they sometimes they came to you with dreams that just seemed crazy unreasonable, you know. Some boy come up to me on the campus and he'd say, President Rutland, you're always talking about dreams. Let me tell you my dream. I said, all right, son, let's have it. He said, I want to play in the NBA. It's all right. It's just COVID. It's okay. It's a jolly crew here, Pastor. (laughs) He'd say, I want to play in the NBA. I want to be a professional basketball player. Well, I wanted to say, look, son, you're 5'4", and you're white. We've got a killer debate team here. Have you thought about the library club? Something I don't. But that wasn't my job. That's not my job. My job is to encourage him. Let life sort all that out. Let reality dawn on him. My job was to encourage him. So I would say, go for it, man. Go for it. And learn to jump. <laughs> because you're going to need some altitude. Now, why would I do that? I would do that because he, he needed encouragement at that moment, not a dose of hard-bitten reality. Also, I don't know who he is. Maybe he's the first 5'4 white kid to play in the NBA. When he writes his autobiography, I want it dedicated to me. <laughs> Second thing is this. Remember that the pathway between the moment you receive the dream and the time that God brings it to pass may not run through the course you think. With God, the shortest distance between any two points is not necessarily a straight line. Look at Joseph. When he dreamed those dreams in his father's tent, do you think for one moment that he said to himself, I know how this is gonna happen. My brothers will hate me. They'll envy me, throw me into a pit, tell my father that I've been eaten by a lion. They'll get me out of the pit, sell me into slavery. The slave traders will take me to Egypt, resell me like a used car. I'll be bought by an Egyptian aristocrat. I'll work as the head of his accounts and finances until his wife falsely accuses me of rape. I'll be thrown into prison, stay there for years until Pharaoh lifts me out of prison, I'll translate one of his dreams, interpret one of his dreams, it'll come to pass. He will make me the second most powerful man in Egypt, which Egypt being the most powerful country in the world at that time, makes me the second most powerful man in the world. There'll be a famine in Israel. My brothers and my dad will come to Egypt seeking grain and not recognizing me, thinking I'm an Egyptian prince, they will make obeisance before me and the dream will be fulfilled. Do you, do you honestly think any of that occurred to him? I don't know. It may be that you received a dream and it's just, it's just languished. It just isn't Happening, It just feels like it's never getting there. You may feel like you're getting further away. Listen to me. Hold on to your dream and let God hold on to you. It can come to pass. It may take time. It may not, it may not go the way you think. You may think you're getting further and further away from it. Look, I, I never once in my life dreamed, never dreamed of the things that Global Servants does. I never dreamed of pastoring at this great church. Dr. Walker brought me, I was preaching one week on the hood of a Land Rover in Northern Ghana. And the next week on the platform at Mount Perrin Central. (laughs) Do you understand? 
it turned my life upside down. And I remember thinking, this, this is not the direction I thought it was gonna go in, but it was the precise direction, the exact direction that God needed for us to go to the next level. This church being a part of my life, this church being a part of your life, you being here, this church being in your life, this is all part of the story. God is doing something in your dream through this that may or may not even make sense. As I get older and older, I realize life doesn't make any sense out the windshield. It makes sense in the rearview mirror. I, I get so tickled at young people. I, I was so tickled when the young man, this good-looking young man leading this thing, and he said, we'll go old school. I thought he meant amazing grace. He meant I'm the friend of God. <laughs> no, that's not old school. I'll show you old school. <laughs> Steal away to Jesus. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's all part of the journey with God. That's part of the excitement. If you could understand it all, if it all made sense to you, there's no adventure to the dream. The third thing is this. The dream may not look like what you thought when you finally get there. Let's, let's be honest. The dream that Joseph had never happened. Those sheaves of wheat never bowed down to his sheaf. He never saw that. The sun and the moon and the stars didn't bow down to him. It was the fulfillment of a dream that he saw in, in form, in, in pattern. The concept of the dream is what was fulfilled. So I see a lot of young people here. It's some young girl who dreams, her dream is to win an Academy Award. She goes off to Lee University and there she has the misfortune to fall in love with a boy majoring in ministry and everything takes a downturn from right there. <laughs> she puts her dream on hold. They go into the ministry. He gets some little church in the hills of North Georgia and she knows she's not gonna win an Academy Award. That's never going to happen. They ask her to direct the Christmas pageant at the little church. And that night, everything that could go wrong goes wrong. The scenery falls over, knocks the manger over, little plastic baby Jesus rolls across the... <laughs> but nobody notices it but her. Everybody's having a wonderful time. After the pageant is over, they all go down to the fellowship hall for chocolate, hot chocolate, and she's sitting on the front row feeling sorry for herself. And she said, this is my husband's dream. This is not my dream. What happened to my Academy Award? Just at that moment, a little boy comes with a bathrobe on, dragging the ground. He's got a towel around his head, secured with a rubber band and a yardstick in his hand that he was using as a shepherd's staff. In his other hand, he's got a dandelion that looks like he's been chewing on it. And he comes to her and says, I've never been in a play before. And tonight, I was a shepherd. And he gives her that battered dandelion. And he says, this is for you. Now, she can feel sorry for herself and blame God that her dream never happened. Or she can clutch that dandelion to her breast and say, at last, my Academy Award. Your dream may not look like what you thought. Well, let me bring this to a conclusion. You've been very patient. When I was in India, I went to a boy's home, to speak at a boy's home, a large boy's home. The old lady that ran it had a disfiguring scar, a great red hand that fell across the side of her face, pulled her eyes and mouth like this. She told me that when she was a little girl, she had jerked a Coleman lantern off a high shelf and it exploded on the side of her face. Burned her badly and... Of course, in a village, there was no plastic surgery. And frankly, I, I don't know what good it would have done. So her mother was hurt by life and poverty and this dreadful event and hurt people, hurt people. So her mother would say to her, you're ugly. No man's ever going to care for you. You better get an education. You better take care of yourself because no man is ever going to provide for you. And so she did. But she kept having a recurring dream. 
not just a dream of her life, a sleeping dream. She would often dream that she was rocking her babies. And there would even be babies on the floor around her. And she would tell it to her mother. And her mother, like Joseph's father and brothers, would rebuke her. Said, her mother said, that's a satanic trick. He's mocking you. No man would ever give you a baby. Forget this. Finally, her mother forbade her. You're, not, you're forbidden to ever mention the dream in this house again. So the girl went to school. She made straight A's. She earned a scholarship to college, went through college, went to New Delhi and went through the university and earned her MBA. When she graduated with her MBA, she came back to the village and spent the first night in her mother's house. And that night, she dreamed the dream again, rocking and cuddling her babies. That morning as they prepared for breakfast, she told her mother, I dreamed that dream again last night. It was so wonderful, rocking my babies. And her mother spun around and slapped her and said, I told you not to ever mention that dream in this house again. Now she was hurt. She said, standing there, tears streaming down my face from that slap, the phone rang at that precise moment. She said, I picked the phone up and it was the bishop of the Church of South India, the Madras Archdiocese. At that time, it was called Madras. And he said, I understand you finished your MBA. He said, we have a boy's home out in, the, out in the countryside, and the old lady that ran it has died, and I was wondering if you'd go out there with me tomorrow and take a look at it. Now she was hurt, and hurt people hurt people. She said, Bishop, you are disgusting. She said, when I was working my way through college, the Church of South India didn't help me. You never gave me a dime toward my MBA. Now I graduate with an MBA, and you think I want to be the house mother at your crummy little rundown boy's home? And the bishop said, I'm sorry, I've miscommunicated. That's not what I want. I'm not asking you to be the house mother. I want to hire you as a consultant. I'd like you to come out and analyze the books. I'd like for you to give us an understanding of the deferred maintenance and what it's going to cost to fix it. And then I'd like to hire you as a search firm to find our new house mother. That's what I want. She said, oh, Bishop, I'm sorry. I'd love to have that contract. I accept it. He and his driver picked her up the next morning, and they drove way out into the countryside to that boy's home. There's a circle driveway that runs in front of the building. They pulled in there, and she stepped out on the building side out of the car. And she said when she did, boys poured out of that building. They came out the windows and doors and they surrounded her and they began jumping up and down and cheering and clapping. And a little four-year-old came and threw his arms around her hips and looked up into her face. And she said, Dr. Rutland, it was as though he couldn't even see how ugly I was. It was like he couldn't even see my scar. And he said, are you our new mother? And she said, I looked into his little brown eyes and I turned to tell the bishop, I'd like to reconsider about being the house mother. And she said, when I turned, I saw his car driving out the main gate. And she said, I've never seen him again. She said, that day, I learned two lessons. The first is this, when God gives you a dream, hold on to that dream. God will bring it to pass by his own supernatural resources in his perfect timing. She said, I have rocked more babies than any woman in India. She said, I have more sons than any woman that's ever lived. She said, that little four-year-old is now a physician in Madras that treats my boys for free. She said, I am the mother of a multitude and I've never known a man. She said, God will bring the dream to pass in his way. I said, that's great. What was the second thing you learned? Oh, she said, the first thing I learned is you can trust God. The second thing is you cannot trust a bishop. <laughs> now, I want to pray for you before we close, and I want to pray for this great church. I want you to bow your head and close your eyes, if you will. Now, I'm going to open my eyes. If you would say, Dr. Mark, will you pray for me? I have a dream that just feels like it's run off the tracks. I just seem to be getting further and further away from it. Remember, a dream deferred is not necessarily a dream destroyed. If you would say, will you pray for me? I just feel like my dream has jumped the tracks. It just feels like I've gotten further away from it and I'm so discouraged. Would you pray for me? If that's you, 
then you lift your hand and I want to pray for you. Sure, sure, so many, so many, so many, that can happen. That can so much happen. Heavenly Father, you see these hands raised and these hearts are open before you. God, it may be that they're closer to the dream than they think. Open their eyes to see what their dream really looks like and not, not the image that they saw all those years ago. Let them see the real thing, God. I believe you for it. I thank you for it. God, I pray that you will open pathways, spring open doors, take them closer, nearer, until the dream is fulfilled according to your will and purpose. Now take your hands down, but keep your eyes closed. Others that would say, I never have really figured out what the dream of my life is. Will you pray for me that I, I may have a great dream? Would you lift your hand? Good, so many, so many, so many. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will give these dreamers dreams. I pray that you will give them dreams in their sleep, when they're awake, in their creative imagination, that you will open up for them ideas and concepts of, to serve humanity. And they'll not decide what's a big dream and what's a little dream. The dream that comes from you, the smallest dream, we will cherish it and receive it and live it out. We believe you for it. Now, Lord, I pray for Mount Perry North. I pray for Pastor Kirk. I pray for the leaders, the administration, staff, the elders. I pray for every member, every, every volunteer. God, we thank you for what you've done. But we, don't, we do not ask that you would pause it here. We're asking you, lead on. Take us higher. Take us further. We believe you, God. New dreams. We thank you for it. And we receive it by faith in advance. In the wonderful name, Jesus, the strong Son of God. Amen. God bless you. God bless Mount Perrin North. And may all your dreams come true. Amen. Come on, let's stand to our feet today as we celebrate all that God has done here at North in our life. We thank you, Lord.
are you thankful for all God has done in your life? Come on, one more time. Why don't you give God your highest praise right now? Lift up your highest praise. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Hey, would you join me in showing your appreciation to Dr. Mark Rutland for bringing the word today? He hasn't asked this, but if you want to get some great resources, uh, you can go to globalservants.org. Um, there are two books that uh, he's written a lot of them, but one of them is called Dreams and the other is called Launch Out Into the Deep. If you can find that one, those two are great, great books that will really, um, uh, what he's talked about this morning will really set you forward in um, believing for what God wants to do in your life. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for doing all that God has called you to do. All the things that have been accomplished here over the last 25 years are because of God's blessings on your life and you being a conduit of that blessing through your resources and your talents and your abilities. And I'm thankful. Laura and I thank God for you every single day. Now, before you go, from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 24 to 26 is a pastoral blessing that says when you speak it, you put the name of God on someone. I want the name of God to be on you when you leave today. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Let's give our response from Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. God bless you folks. Love you. Happy anniversary. <laughs>